Good morning, everyone. Good morning. A couple of announcements. Today, we've got the biblical dinner coming up Friday, Saturday, excuse me. That starts at uh, 6 p.m., but be here at 6.45, 5.45. I'm just having a problem with numbers. I need to write these things down. Six o'clock, be here 15 minutes early. That'd be great. If you're cooking and serving, you, you already know the drill. Bob's let you know. So that's Saturday. Looking forward to that. Um, also an announcement from the children's ministry. They remind everyone kindly to come sign out your children directly after service because this impacts them just uh, as a courtesy to them and your children. Just come, pick them up, sign them out, and that'll be helpful for everyone. Um, appreciate that. And thanks to all those who, who do serve in children's ministry and bless the children and teach them. It's uh, so awesome to uh, minister to God's little ones and uh, see them grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus. So we'll be in Ecclesiastes 6 today, and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an awesome God, that despite my failures and foolishness, you have come to save me. You've come to save us. You have delivered us from the power of sin and death, and you've given us a hope in heaven that will never be taken away, reserved for us. And we thank you that we can fellowship together, that we can praise and thank you, that we can glorify your holy name and draw near to you in faith. And thank you for the faith you give us to do that and for the way you answer prayers and the, the testimony you've given us of your faithfulness and goodness to help us every day of our life. And Lord, help us to number our days to apply ourselves to wisdom. And thanks so much for your word that we can read, that we can meditate on, that that really transforms us from within. So we pray you do that work by the power of the Holy Spirit today in each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article this week about a spa in the Czech Republic in the early 1900s. Um, it circulated radon in the air, vented from a hot spring. So it's naturally occurring radon. And uh, it was discovered that radon would shrink cancerous tumors. And so it was believed to be safer, a safer delivery to inhale radon to help your cancer treatment. And it was disastrous because radon is a leading cause of lung cancer. So uh, quoting the article, it said, it was the difference between treating illness with a bomb rather than a scalpel. So it was not a good plan. And uh, if the supposed cure causes more problems than the disease, I want to try something else. Like I want to know if something's safe or effective. And I want to be able to explore other options, not being told this is the way you're going to get better. And it actually makes you worse. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's wisdom for us who live under the sun today. And it shows us the folliness and the emptiness of trying to find satisfaction or fulfillment in the pursuit of gain of wealth or possessions or fun. And it's like a warning to us. It's like those who discover that radon's actually really bad to breathe. Solomon's experienced it all. And he says, guys, you're not going to find any satisfaction under the sun. You, you cannot find fulfillment and rest in this world from things of the world. It's not possible. And so there's that warning that he's putting out there that we would listen to and say, well, I, I'm actually going to believe God's word. I'm going to trust him. And uh, 
the ones who find Ecclesiastes depressing, it may be due to a reluctance or an unwillingness to abandon the vain hope that we could achieve or earn or find something in this world that could satisfy us or give us rest. So for Christians reading Ecclesiastes, we know that Solomon came to these views. They are, it is wisdom from God, but he came to these conclusions without the knowledge of the gospel or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like most of us, he figured bigger was better, and he did that. He explored everything to the full. He had more than he ever wanted or could use, but he was left profoundly empty and dissatisfied. And the, the law of Moses, it gave no promise at all for the abundant life that we find in Jesus Christ alone. And we'll see as the scripture unfolds and there's more revelation, and especially when Jesus the light of the world has come and shines in the darkness that he gives us a hope that's just not found in this world. So to people desperate for hope, comfort, and purpose, Solomon says, you're not going to find it under the sun. Save yourself the pain of thinking that it, you could find it there. We've discovered the life that's in the son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's where the abundant life is. That's where satisfaction, comfort, and rest is found. So Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself and all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Solomon observes this great evil, a malignant disease. He says, this is common among people, God gives wealth, he gives honor, and everything you could want, but he causes us to lack the power to eat of it. So people can su succeed at obtaining, but really not partaking, not enjoying the benefits of their labor. Jesus told a parable of a rich man where we see this happen. He had this bumper crop. He wonders, well, how am I going to keep all this for myself? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns, I'll big builder barns, and then I can... Say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, I'm set for life. Jesus said in Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, you fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God provided the rich man more than he had room for, yet God did not give him the power to eat of it. Now, God was not wrong or unjust or without grace to do this because God gave him the opportunity every day of the rich man's life to be rich towards God who provides eternal security and rest that this man was thinking was found in his stuff. The rich man, imagine he had a lot of days left on earth. You know, for years he was set but he was not able to enjoy the fruit of his labor. His own folly prevented him from enjoying the lasting reward of Christ's labor on earth and true gain. Because the true gain is only measured in being rich towards God. It's not in enjoying a great life here with everything that your heart could desire. We see this also in Gideon's day. The food and the wealth of Israel was being stolen by the Midianites. They were oppressing God's people. And that period was marked by everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. And God allowed his erring people to suffer, to suffer loss from their enemies, to chasten them to repentance. 
God raised up Gideon and other judges to miraculously deliver them from their enemies and to judge them in the fear of God. Another thing that Solomon observed was that those had everything they could want, but they preferred to hoard it rather than using it. So they had gained great wealth, but they lived as if they didn't have it. They didn't use it for the Lord or even themselves. And it was like their own greed prevented them from enjoying the bounty God provided them. And it just passed to other people. So the riches, the wealth and honor God gave, it wasn't enough. It was dismissed by the greedy soul. So he's like, this is a problem. This is a common problem. Verse three, if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better than he for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. Solomon now employs hyperbole. That's uh, um, overemphasis to make a point, exaggeration to make a point. And he's illustrating the insatiable desire of the human heart that lacks contentment. And he's, some people, they're, not, they're content to not have children. Some are content with one or two or 10. Children are a blessing from the Lord as well as every day and every year that we have on earth. But Solomon says you can have a hundred children. You can live decades beyond the average life expectancy, and you can still have a dissatisfied soul despite everything that God's given you, despite everything that he's done for you. And he goes further. He says, this man, even a man who never died and lived forever on earth, a stillborn child is in a better place than him who has everything because there's a rest he knows that that living man will never know. This is a pretty sobering thing to say, like pretty bleak where someone as wealthy and powerful as Sodom is saying, well, that stillborn child's in a better place than this guy who has everything. A person like me, Solomon is saying. The rich, the poor, the young and old, they all go to the same place. They all go to the grave. You can live for thousands of years on earth. Never find the good rest that your heart is longing for. It's not found here. Apart from God, life under the sun, it's full of toil and trouble without a genuine offer of rest or contentment. And we can see this in the lives of God's people throughout scripture, especially when they're coming out of Egypt, right? You would think they would be eternally grateful because God heard their prayers. He delivered them from slavery and he brought them out with this promise of this new land, the promised land he was going to give them. In a matter of days, they were grumbling and complaining. Like it didn't, the good feelings didn't last for a week or a month. No, a day, a few days later, they were complaining and murmuring. It's a romantic fantasy to think that God's answer to our prayer or getting exactly what we want will provide peace for us just in the thing that we get. See what it says of God's people he saved from death in Psalm 106.13. It says, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and God tested them in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. 
God remembered his people. They forgot him. They were not satisfied with fresh water or so fresh water from the rock or the bread from heaven. They wanted meat. And he's like, you want meat? I'll give you meat. So it's coming out your nose. That's a lot of meat. So he's like, you can have all this meat more than you could gather, more than you could eat in a lifetime. So it was not from lack of food, but he says he also sent leanness into their soul. They're spiritually emaciated, though they ate well. They had quail, they had quail's eggs, but they were not satisfied. They had no rest or comfort. And God sought to teach them that man shall not live by bread alone or by quail alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That you live by God's word. And in rejecting him, in rejecting his word, they starved themselves of rest. They starved themselves of contentment. They never found it. Not in the things of the world. Even in the Old Testament under the law, there was real hope and encouragement in the Lord. David wrote this in Psalm 27, verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. This is Solomon's dad saying this. So there was hope. There was rest. There was strength. There was contentment found in God, but it's not going to be found by acquiring things or earning status in the world. God's the greatest good that ever will be and has ever been. And by faith in him, we are made strong to endure trials. And we can spend our days lamenting the vanity of life under the sun and envy others who seem to enjoy rest. Or we can wait patiently on the Lord and look to him. Say, Lord, this is what you said. I believe you. And, and all of us have to a degree been confronted with our own misconceptions like Solomon or like, yeah, you know, I haven't found satisfaction. I haven't found rest in that new position or this new thing. I'm not comforted at all by that. It's empty in the end. Now, what Jesus said, it's comfort food for the soul in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It doesn't say you can or you might. You will if you come to him. We come to him weary. We come to him hungry. We come to him thirsty. We bring our need to him, and he supplies that need. And abundantly, where we can say, my cup overflows. It's better to admit that we are empty and troubled in spite of what we have and repent of that sin of thinking we could enjoy rest or find it in things of this world. Verse seven, all the labor of man is for his mouth and yet the soul is not satisfied for what more has the wise man than the fool. What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And we labor in life because we must. We must for our survival. But no amount of good quality food that we eat, it, it can't nourish our soul, right? Like when God sent leanness into their souls, they couldn't satisfy that leanness, that starvation with food. They needed to feed on him, his faithfulness, his word, and then they would be satisfied. Then they would be strengthened. Now the wise, Solomon observes, they can be, the wise can be poor in the things of this world or in the world's goods, and the foolish can be rich, 
So how is the wise benefiting from his wisdom? And this viewpoint, it comes from thinking that the best rewards of life are in the here and now. Like the, the valuing the things that we can have over God and what he supplies us by his grace. And it seemed injustice to him that someone who knows how to live life well could lack the best things under the sun. But we see that that's not true. We look at the life of Jesus who lacked the world's goods. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to rest his head, to call his own. He's a perfect man without sin. He had nothing without value. Yet he was totally without envy and greed. He was never discontent. He was always at rest, but he didn't have stuff. And it wasn't like if he, because he had rest because he didn't have stuff. And we can make that mistake. We're like, if I just had less stuff, if I had less responsibilities, then I could be at rest. Try it. Go ahead. Listen to Solomon though. Hear what he's saying. It's not from what you have or what you don't have. That's not where the rest is going to be. It's found in God and in trusting him and resting in him. There was a man who approached Jesus and, and urged him. He says, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Seems like the inheritance went to one son and he's thinking like, well, I should get some of that. And Jesus said this in Luke twelve fifteen. He said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness for one life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Solomon labored to grasp this truth that all that he had was not moving him any closer to happiness or satisfaction. And so he's looking at it and going, this is vanity. I have all this. It's still not getting me any closer to my goal of rest. And the more you have, the greater potential there is your expectations or your desires are going to be disappointed. It's like you're heaping up potential disappointment for yourself because you're thinking in this thing, I'm going to be content. I'm going to be uh, at rest. And again, this is only depressing news if you refuse to accept what Jesus plainly said and modeled. And we say, well, yes, life is improved. My happiness is increased by the amount of things I have. And Jesus is like, no, that's not where your abundance is going to be. It's in him. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Better is the one thing that you can see or that you have than the things that you long for that you have not seen and you do not have. If we set our affections on what we don't have, it is a vain exercise. It is grasping for the wind. It is futile. It is pointless. It's better to enjoy what you have than lament over all that you don't have. This wandering of desire, it implies a lack of rest. It's an aimless pursuit. It sounds like someone who's lost. They don't know what, what they're, where they're going and they don't know how to get there. So they have this wandering of desire. They, they sense a need. They're trying to meet that need by the things they can see or the things they don't see, and they're as empty as ever. If we make things under the sun our chief desire, Solomon's experience teaches us they cannot bring us satisfaction. Now, it's like trying to use a skateboard to get to heaven. There's a reason why they don't use skateboards in space travel. And, and you don't need to be an astronomer or work at NASA to know this. You could, even if you manage to build a ramp to heaven, 
it would do no good to you once you got into space. But the funny thing is, we can all see that. I, I hope we can all see that. We can understand that. Like, yeah, it's not going to help me with my breathing. I'm just, you know, you're in a void. You'll just be pulled apart. It'd be a disaster. But we do think, though, if we had a new role, we would be satisfied with that. If we were married, we would be content. If our anxiety would be eased, if we were able to build or, or buy a house in a better suburb, or we could find lasting rest by retiring with billions. It's exactly the same thing as trying to take a skateboard to the moon to think that this skateboard is going to be the best way to explore Neptune. It's equally as impossible. And sometimes because we are stubborn and we don't believe God, we have to put ourselves through this. We have to actually experience it for ourselves like Solomon and just say, you know, God's right. His word is right. My satisfaction is in these things. And then change our life because of that truth. And the sooner we learn to accept this fact, the better. It means we're going to grow in gratitude and the praise of God for all that he is, for all that he's done for us. That the jobs and houses and relationships and money he's given us, they are gifts from him meant to be enjoyed by him. But our satisfaction is not in those things. That's not where my rest is. It's in him. Ecclesiastes 6.10, whatever one is, he has been named already for it is known that he is man and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? No matter what we achieve, acquire, or earn. We can never be anything more than a man or a woman. We can't be anything more than a human being like Adam and Eve created by God who must stand before God on the day of judgment. Royals remain men. And Solomon's like, you know, it doesn't mean you're a different person because you have stuff. We can't rise above our humanity. God has made limits on the things we can see and do, think, and endure. And we can modify our bodies. We can change our clothes or our hair. But God's still our creator, and we're still subject to him. And we can deny this. We can fight against it to all our dying breath. But we will stand before God who kills and makes alive. And those who declare war on God and all he's declared sacred, they can't even contend with him. It's like a newborn child cannot dress himself. So it's like, we are that helpless before God. And it's good for us to recognize his sovereignty, his power over us, and that it's futile to fight against him. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? It's a bit of humor here. Now, it's one thing if you had two shards and you're like, let's see which one's stronger and you whack them together and one of them breaks. You're like, oh, this is the winner. Okay, where's a different one? You get a different one and you smack them together. Now, this one's the winner. Okay, the, the potsherds can smack each other around, but he says you can't fight against the maker. It's like the pot, the pot can't say, my maker has, where are the hands of God? No one's, I mean, we are his handiwork. We are created in the image of God. We are evidence that God exists. 
because we're different than every other living thing on this planet in all that God's made. How foolish it would be to think that we know better than God, that we know more than him to deny his existence or that he can't do something when our very lives are in his hands. Solomon then, because he put his hopes in finding some satisfaction and rest on earth, he's despairing not only of the futility of life, but man's ignorance of what's going to happen or what's even best for him. Our lives are like a shadow without substance that disappears in an instant. I I think the book of Ecclesiastes, it's so useful. It's really good though, that it's one out of 66 books. It's one facet that we need to take into account of God's word. But there are a lot of other books that speak into these questions that Solomon's asking. Solomon's asking all these questions from a worldly perspective that the rest of the Bible and even in this book, there are answers there. He says, how can we improve as humans? Who knows what's good for man in life? Well, what does it say in Micah 6, 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Someone's like, who's going to show us what's good? He has shown you what's good. God is good. And this, these are the good ways to live. There are great benefits and rewards for walking with God in faith. He's shown us what's good. And we can only succeed at doing these things as a result of our being in Christ. We can't just do them. It's a response because we are in him. Being in him, he helps us to do them. By the revelation of Jesus Christ, who brought life into the world. We have a sure hope of salvation and glory in his presence right now. It's not just in a far off time. It's he is present in our hearts So we have this new way of living by faith in him. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he supplies what Solomon could never find in all of his stuff. You know, his peacocks and apes and gold and silver and his musicians and his houses and his projects. Peace, satisfaction, joy, and rest in abundance in Christ. Everything. More than you ever thought to ask for are supplied exceedingly by his grace. His, Jesus' wisdom for us that infinitely exceeds the knowledge of Solomon, who's saying, how, did man, how is man made better? And we have Christ. His wisdom is much more precious than the net worth of Solomon's kingdom. Picking up in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In this next chapter, Solomon takes a step back from complaining about the vanity of life on earth, and he begins to take take stock of what's profitable for us. Like there are benefits uh, of living in a godly way now. And he acknowledges that the character of a person is more valuable than having precious things. 
So this good name, it refers to a reputation and a standing. It's not saying like, oh, Bill's a bad name and Tom is a good name. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that there, there is someone that has a good reputation, a person of good character, known for doing godly things. That's better than having a high net worth, having riches. In Proverbs 22, verse 1, he said something similar. He said, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor, favor rather than silver and gold. Now, we can have this upside down. We think, well, the money is more beneficial to me now. I could care less about my character. I'd rather just have money and then maybe, well, your character will probably just be exposed by that money. Um, and Jehoram, he was a wealthy king who learned firsthand the value of a good name before God. They were meeting for battle with King Jehoshaphat and on the cusp of battle, there were no, there was no water for their animals. And so they're like all flocks, our animals are going to die. God's let, so Jehoram's like, God's led us into a trap. He, he's just trying to get over on us. And Jehoshaphat is like, well, shouldn't we seek the Lord? Shouldn't we pray? And they called the prophet Elisha, and it says in 2 Kings 3.14, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you to Jehoram, the king. He's like, if it wasn't for this guy, I wouldn't even see you. I wouldn't even notice you standing there. So for his sake... I have an answer. And God provided the water that they needed and defeated their enemies as well. God looks upon favorably those who humble themselves in faith before him. Do you want to be seen and known by God who supplies everything we need? Well, a good name is to be chosen over wealth. So he says, it's better than precious ointment. Do you treasure designer fragrances or stacks of cash over God seeing us and meeting our needs. Then Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of our birth or being born. When we grieve the passing of a loved one, especially one with a good name like Dorcas, she spent her life serving and giving to others in Acts chapter 9. Um, that is a graduation to glory for us. Those who are born again, those who are living their lives for Christ, the death of the body, it's freedom from constantly dying. Because when you're born, you, be, you are beginning, you're moving towards death. And so that process is over once your body is dead. And that it marks the beginning of an eternal rest that's free from the pains of the body and the vanity of this world and the sin which easily weighs us down and those weights. And it's Jesus cashing in on the rewards of his suffering. So there's a lot of blessing that comes from um, a life well lived before God. The good and the wicked alike, those who are uh, unrighteous in sin, those who have repented and trusted in Christ will all die. And God uses that time of mourning to remind us that our time on earth is short. We're like the grass. We sung about it today. We're like the grass that's there one day, green and flourishing, and then withers the next, especially in heat that we're having. Moses wrote this in Psalm 90, verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
often we measure our lives by years, right? We say how many years old we are, not how many days we are. But he says, teach us to number our days, that every day is valuable before the Lord. To number our days, to have a heart of wisdom, a heart that fears God and trusts him, counting all loss for the excellency of gaining Christ. And then I love the Psalm. I just kept reading it in Psalm 91. This is what it says in verse 14 to 16. It's true for everyone who believes the gospel. It says, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It's like, this is God's promise to you if you love him, if you trust him. It says, because he loves me, I will deliver him. I will set him on high. He calls, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver and honor him. And I will show him my salvation. With long life, I will satisfy him. And man, what is longer than eternity? That is. Our satisfaction is not in how many years we have, but in the Savior who holds us close. A good name is better than wealth. It's better for us, he says, to mourn than to feast. Now, which one do you like doing more? Like, come on, feasting, not mourning. But he's saying sorrow is better than laughter because it's it's working in us better character. It's, It's forming good things in us. Funerals are better than festivals, parting and indulging the flesh in music or drink or trying to catch the eye of potential suitors. It's set against mourning, reflection, consideration of the praiseworthy qualities of the deceased, our own manner of life, our own morality, our own mortality. And then we have the ability to have a change, a good change happen in us because of the passing of someone else. But those who are living like life is a joke or that it'll never end, you're not going to be learning much from them. It's good to take those sobering lessons to heart to build godly character rather than just dancing or laughing at jokes. Now, there's nothing wrong with feasts, parties, music, dancing. These also are gifts from God. But Solomon makes the point, we can learn better lessons from the dead than those who live like life will never end or they'll never stand before God. And we'll close with these in verse five and six of Ecclesiastes seven. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. He's saying it's better to heed, to take to heart the rebuke of the wise more than hear the song of fools, even if it brings a smile to your face. Uh, I'm always amazed at teen camp, we, whether we're in the bus or uh, having a dance on Thursday night, and they're playing like songs from the top 40, and I don't know a single one of them, but all of the kids seem to know all of the words, and they're just shouting them at the top of their lungs. It's great to hear them having fun. Uh, I just don't know any of those songs. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of these popular songs, I'm like, they just played this song like five songs ago. Like it's the same songs again and again, and they often lack substance. There's not much about morality. It's not a bunch about the fear of God or honoring him or giving him even a mention. Nothing about changing our hearts before him. 
Nothing that's making a strong case for introspection and how we, our character ought to grow, like what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. Now, the glorious thing is that God can use even a drunken anthem to instruct us in wisdom. The, the song of the fool can be catchy. It can loop in your brain, but it's the rebuke received by the humble that will actually change you for the better. Long after that song is forgotten, it's no longer in the top 40, and it's become the one-hit wonder. And they go, well, who was that band again? Or what was that song? Just nostalgia, maybe for a handful of people. But we have the words of life. We have Christ who changes us. It talks about receiving rebuke. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Our response when we are rebuked, it says more about us than the rebuker. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 9 verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So we are revealed to be the scoffers if, when rebuked, we hate that person, or we mark them as an enemy because they have spoken to correct us or to rebuke us in some way. We, should, we demonstrate wisdom by listening to them, by receiving that humbly. Even when the person who rebukes, it doesn't mean they're right. The rebuker isn't always right, but it's better to humble ourselves and to receive that and to, to take it on board, bring it before the Lord rather than just singing along with the fools without a care. Because happy feelings, laughter, they're transitory things that are over, 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 they are over in a minute. They're over, I can't even say it. They are over in a short period of time, right? He compares the laughter of the fool to thorns crackling under the pot. It's like you're trying to start a fire and it's better to have logs under the, the pot than a few thorns. It's like crackle, crackle, it's gone. You can't eat dinner from a few thorns crackling under the pot. Now, remember, Solomon, he explored comedy, laughter, entertainment to the full. And he's like, it left me empty like everything else. It accomplished nothing of lasting value. And it's funny how many times we've heard something that we thought was funny. And then we've tried to tell someone else how funny it was. And we couldn't even remember what happened. We're like, I'm butchering this punchline, but it was so funny. You'd have to hear it for yourself because I can't even remember it. So it's like, if you can't even remember it, how could it change you for good? How could it change you for the better? Yes, it was funny. And laughter is a gift from God. But pursuing it, trying to find peace and happiness and comfort in that, it will leave you empty. Praise the Lord that Jesus, he connects these temporary passing things with the sure promise of blessing that are permanent. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, 
and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Solomon had everything he wanted in abundance and he still was left empty. And it's in recognizing our emptiness and our poverty of soul that we have come to Jesus for hope, rest, and love not found in this world. And so he says, you know, you who lack, you who are poor, you will, um, yours is the kingdom of God. You who are hungry now, you have this insatiable hunger, you shall be filled. Everything that, it's like these, these passing pleasures that God gives us, they only begin to scratch the surface of the permanent condition that we have in him. All of these things met in him fully, abundantly. I just love that. So it's like you feel hungry today and it feels great when you have a delicious meal and you're, you're satisfied. Yeah, it's just a few minutes. You feel satisfied, but you're like, that was so good. Well, that's your permanent condition in heaven. And when you're saying, oh, I need this. I'm lacking it. And then the Lord provides miraculously the money that you needed and some extra that you never thought would be there. Well, that feeling and that joy, that's going to be a permanent condition in heaven. Everything, everything that you try to supply by feeling like you're fitting in. You're like, yeah, it's great to be part of a team. That's a permanent condition in heaven and beyond just how you feel. This is the reality of being in Christ. That all the things that trouble you under the sun, whether it be poverty, hunger, sorrow, being hated and excluded, one day you're never going to experience that again. It's going to be over. That will have passed away and everything will have become new. And it's not just in heaven that we can experience the satisfaction that's in Christ right now. Because he says, blessed are you, not blessed you will be. Someday you will be blessed. No, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry because you will be filled. There's that promise we have from him. And so having tasted death for us and overcome it, Jesus bids us to rejoice with joy when we're hated for trusting him and loving him because great is our reward in heaven. And let's heed Solomon's warnings of the vanity of life so we could value what is best for us, to heed the rebuke of the wise, to learn to number our days, to gain a heart of wisdom. Because we have in our few days on earth an opportunity to be rich toward God knowing our reward in heaven is great. It says in Colossians 3, 1, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Talk about an abundant life and reason to rejoice. With eternal life, Jesus will satisfy us and show us his salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the rebuke that you give us in your word when we have looked to things of this world to find rest and comfort and satisfaction that's found only in Jesus. Thank you for your long suffering with us, Lord, and how you've still been so gracious and generous with us 
despite the, the time of our lives we spent looking, just mindlessly wandering, setting our minds on things of earth when we should be setting them on you and on things above, things that will endure. And we thank you, Lord, that you are uh, just compassionate. You know our frame. You know that we're living in a world of vanity, that uh, there's nothing that can satisfy us here, and yet you have satisfied us with yourself, and you withhold no good thing from us. And so we praise you, Lord, for your salvation. We thank you for your wisdom and your counsel, your guidance and strength. And I pray we would wait upon you, Lord. We would take your yoke upon us and learn of you. And we would walk in your ways to bring you honor and glory that we wouldn't think that we could possibly find security or satisfaction in this world when you are our life. And uh, thank you that we will always be with you and that you're with us even now. And I pray that you would just minister your truth to our hearts and fill us with joy, Lord, not, not despair over the vanity of life, but uh, uh, opening our eyes to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.